And if you'd like, you can turn in the book of Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 11. As we continue our time working through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we've been reading sequentially through the book of Proverbs, and we come to Proverbs chapter 11, verses 23 through 27. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. The desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon the reading and the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before your word and uh, ask that you would attend it with your blessing. That is, it is read and preached that uh, it would penetrate our hearts, that it would uh, enlighten uh, our minds, uh, that it would uh, exalt um, your great name, uh, displaying uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the one in whom you have revealed yourself perfectly in uh, justice and mercy and grace and truth. Uh, how excellent is our portion, O Lord, is we have uh, the high and mighty privilege of receiving from your word. Um, help us to cherish it and um, receive it as such, uh, not as the word of men, but as uh, your word, uh, the word of the living and true God. Um, and thus grant that we receive it by faith and meekness, uh, that we may um, enjoy the salvation of our souls and uh, grow up uh, into the Lord, our head. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. We spend uh, one more evening considering the fifth commandment as we make our way through the shorter catechism. You can find the shorter catechism and the pertinent section in your Trinity Psalter hymnal on page 973. We'll actually read 64, 65, and 66, but first I'll read once more the fifth commandment from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. This is God's word. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And thus ends God's word. Question 64 asks, what is required in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment requireth the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, and equals. What is forbidden in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment forbiddeth the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongeth to everyone in their several places and relations. And then question 66, what is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? 
The reason annexed to the fifth commandment is promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good to all such as keep this commandment. I've mentioned the scene that I quite enjoy from The Once and Future King, that great novel about King Arthur and Merlin, his tutor. It is the scene where Arthur has just become king and he is rather enjoying the perks that come with being king. He sees war as a sort of sport and he's enjoying the thrill of it, the pleasure of it. He's giving no consideration to the harm that's coming to those who are actually being destroyed by war. He is simply seeing it from the vantage point of the one who won't be touched by it. And Merlin is growing uh, rather irritated with his young charge, uh, wondering if he is ever going to learn, if all of those years spent training him to consider the mighty responsibility of being a leader. He finds in this moment irritation at his young charge, wondering if any of that has made an impression upon him. If this is the sort of king that he had formed through all those young years, one who saw a station of superiority as something to be employed for his mere amusement with no consideration to those who were in his charge. We continue in the fifth commandment this evening, turning our attention to superiors, as the larger catechism puts it. What is the duty, the responsibility that we have when we find ourselves in a station of superiority? We find ourselves in a station where others have been entrusted unto us. Fathers, parents, elders. In our workplaces where you have people who answer to you, what does God call you to do in these stations? What are your relative duties as Christians fulfilling this position? We can name any number of duties as the Westminster Larger Catechism does, but we'll focus just on three. The first is humility. You need not look any further than the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Paul's great hymn in Philippians 2, the life-giving invitation in Matthew's Gospel where he invites all to come to him and he presents himself as the giver of life, lowly and gentle. We need not consider anything beyond the excellencies of our King in this regard that He showcases His glory in humility. That His station, His unparalleled station is one adorned with the excellence of meekness, approachability. It's most fitting that in our positions of authority that we do so, adorning them with humility looking unto our Lord and Savior as that perfect model and seeking that portion of His Spirit which reflects itself in the same meekness. 
We considered last week how the Lord instructed his apostles about the greatness of lowliness. As he placed before them a child as they were about to embark upon this call to occupy very real stations in the church. He said, you're not to lord it over one another as the Gentiles do, but among you, the one who would be great, let him be a servant. And is this not what the Lord Jesus Christ presents himself as? The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. In the Old Testament, we find that the Lord revealed to Joseph that he would occupy a position of remarkable authority. But before that, Joseph would learn true humility. He would be brought low in preparation of occupying this service, this status. Could you imagine the brazenness of young Joseph being placed in the exalted position of older Joseph and the harm such thing would have done? The Lord in his wisdom taught his servant humility that prior to ruling, one must be brought low. Nor is the humility to be a fake humility, a faux humility, one adopted in pretense. Rather, it's a humility that is steeped in truth, is it not? Don't we have great cause to occupy our stations in great humility when we consider, first and foremost, the realities of our sin? That each and every one of us is laid low. That whatever advantages have been assigned to us by virtue of our position, by virtue of our station, there's a very real sense in which we can say, this too has been given to me by God's grace. For there is much that I have done which has disqualified me from the least of his favor. But the humility doesn't come just from a sight and sense of our sin. It also comes from a sight and sense of the responsibility that the Lord places upon us in these stations. It's what King Arthur failed to grapple with, that the station he occupied was not for his mere amusement, but was first and foremost a responsibility to be discharged for his actions had greater ramifications. What he did had a broader reach than one who was not in the position that he was in. The saying goes, heavy is the head that wears the crown, not haughty is the head. And we do doubly well to remember that the crown that we wear is the crown our Lord wore, first and foremost of thorns, of lowliness, and in his timing, the crown of glory, as he declares, well done, good and faithful servant to those who look to him in faith. Westminster Larger Catechism 130 warns superiors explicitly of inordinate seeking of self, Inordinate seeking of one's own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure. An arrogant inferior is a nuisance. An arrogant superior is a disaster. Mark your station. Undoubtedly, you occupy some station of superiority where others have been entrusted to your care. As you view this station, what guides you? What motivates you? What drives you? Is it a sight and a sense 
of your responsibility to do good to those in your charge as Christ has done good unto you? Or is it a self-seeking of your own ease, your own advancement, your own reputation, your own gain? to repent in this area. I suspect that we all do in some measure or another. Do we not? We can mark our great king and we can look upon his loveliness and the greatness that he shows in laying his life down for the sheep. That discourse in John 10 is somewhat deceiving as the greatness of the shepherd is shown in laying down his life for the sheep. And we think, oh, what a good shepherd. And we fail to realize that shepherd was the chief metaphor for king to the ancient mind. This is not a lowly shepherd who leads his life, who yields his life. This is a king who yields his life. This is a king who dies for his subjects. Indeed, as one modern poet puts it, it is a story where the hero dies for villains. And thus it is a story unlike any other, attesting a glory unlike any other. This is the king. This is the husband. And he reveals the father, the one who does good to us constantly, though he is vastly superior to us. Is he not? This is our God, beloved. And he is the one who charges us to discharging our offices of superiority in humility. Next and closely related is a duty unto love. Not only humility before God and before those whom we have care of, but also to love those who are in our care. Westminster Larger 29 begins positively saying that we are bound to love, pray for, and bless our inferiors. If a wife owes her husband respect from the heart, the husband owes his wife love from the heart, self-sacrificial love from the heart. The perfect exemplar once more being the Lord Jesus Christ who dies for the bride, who withholds from her no good thing. There is no place before the Lord for hearts marked by cruelty. It is to be a household configured in love as one of its chief distinguishing marks. For by love we have been saved. Moreover, the larger catechism specifies that this life of love is no mere vague sentiment. No mere nebulous fondness, but it shows itself in the pursuit of that person's good through praying for that person and blessing, meaning procuring good for that one. So I ask you pray for those who are under your care. Husbands, do you pray for your wives? Parents, do you pray for your children? Elders, do we pray for our flock? Do you pray for your employees? Go figure. For the one who is the fount of every good is our Father, and we have free access to Him in the Son by the Spirit. And we're invited to pray for one another, particularly for those in our care. Is this not what our Lord does for us? 
One of the rather astonishing revelations, if you could even call it that, for they're all astonishing, is that the Lord Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. What's He doing right now? He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. He prays for us. He did it during His earthly ministry. He's doing it in the session, session at the right hand of the Father demonstrating the excellencies of his occupancy of that office of superiority and the discharge of love even now as he ensures that every good thing for which he has died, every good thing which he has purchased comes home to the hearts of those whom the Father has given him to the praise of God's glorious grace. He's doing these things, beloved. And He calls us to pray for one another, particularly as those who are over others. And do you stop there? Seek the good. Do the good. (laughs) It's not just a nebulous love, nor does it stop in prayer, but it's the doing of good insofar as it remains in our power. Now you could go and meditate on this. How do we do good? There's so many different ways. Father's making time for your children. How good that is. Have you ever been struck? And some of you no longer have little children anymore, but I'm struck with the simplicity with which I can do my children good now. They view it as an inestimable good if I just play Candyland with them. <laughs> do it. For such is the duty the Lord assigns to us in our positions of superiority. And guess what? It's wonderful anyway. How good God is. We can also find examples of this, not just in the Lord Jesus Christ, but in the church. And as we seek to discharge our duty in our various stations as fathers, as husbands, as parents, as employees, whatever the case may be, the wisdom of God is on display in the arrangement of the church. Isn't this the point that Paul makes in Titus as he encourages older women to teach younger women? He encourages older men to teach younger men. Let not our pride get in the way, for if you're a superior in one regard, make no mistake, you're an inferior in another regard. And there's much to be learned at the feet of those who have been walking in this way in reliance upon the Lord. There'll be no perfect models here, make no mistake, but it would be despising the Lord's gifts and graces to say that there were no godly models here. For this is part of what Christ has purchased for us, a growth in grace that we can see on display in actual flesh and blood sinners just like you, just like me. And there's encouragement there, isn't it? To know that God makes godly fathers out of the same fallen lump of which I am is encouragement for me as I grapple with my failures as a father and know that anyone who has gained in godliness is not immune from those failures, but is relying upon the same portion of grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you receive encouragement from that? Can we rejoice at the Lord's wisdom in that? Does our pride prevent us from learning from such excellent portions of wisdom on display from our God? 
I hope not. If so, Lord have mercy on us. The third is that we owe a godly example. As superiors, we owe humility, we owe love, and we owe a godly example. This is one of the most important and the most difficult calls of the station, is it not? Paul encourages Timothy in this, let no one despise your youth, but set an example for believers in word, in manner of life, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Timothy occupied a position of superiority according to the configuration of what we're considering here. He had authority, and yet his youth, his relative age, was making it difficult for some to look to him as a legitimate expression of this authority. How would you advise such a one? The Lord has placed you in a station, and yet nobody seems to be respecting you in that station. How would you comport yourself? What advice would you give? How do you act? Because inevitably this has happened to you. You feel disrespected. You feel that the person has not honored the place that you occupy. What do you do? What advice would you give to a Christian who finds himself in that place? Well, Paul gives advice. What does he say? It's not the advice of James and John, because make no mistake, if you experience some sort of indignation over your non-honor, the Lord Jesus Christ experienced it worse as the Lord of glory, unrecognized, unacknowledged for the entirety of His earthly ministry. They didn't even recognize Him at the cross, as the Christ, let alone as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. No honor, no respect, and His followers well-intended. Shall we call down thunder? Mark, if you don't do that. Mark, if you don't do that. Mark, if you don't do that. You feel the disrespect, you feel the slight, and you call down the thunder, as it were. There's no bearing. There's no persevering. There's no meekness. There's no lowliness. There's call down thunder from heaven. What does Paul say here? Let no one despise your youth. Call down the thunder. Let no one despise your youth. Set an example. Set an example in word, in manner of life, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Paul commends the loveliness and vindicatory power of a godly life. He commends Christ-likeness. He commends walking the way of the cross, which has a loveliness that will be veiled to hard hearts, but to those struck by the Spirit of God will shine forth with an otherworldly brilliance. Isn't that the paradox of the cross? That it's simultaneously horrifying and marvelous? That in the lowliness to the eyes of faith, there is a glory. It's not just lowliness, then glory, that's true. It's also glory in lowliness, is it not? Isn't that what Paul here commends and earnestly expects this leader, you leaders, to imbibe in some sense as we take hold of that portion by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? We have reason to repent here, don't we? Because we're quick to the thunder. 
slow to the quiet loveliness of an example lived by faith. I have reason to repent. I know you do too. There are other responsibilities that we could consider. The call to nurture and instruct. The call to commend the good and discountenance the ill. The call to provide and to protect. The call to avoid undue or harsh correction, provoking and careless exposure to evil. Let us feel something of the weight of responsibility. It's not authority first, and then maybe I'll get around to considering my responsibilities. It's authority given for the discharge of responsibilities. Those two things go hand in hand, beloved. Let us feel something of the weight of this responsibility. Let it put us on our knees, seeking the Lord's mercy, casting ourselves upon him for forgiveness and the strength necessary to flicker forth something of his loveliness as we occupy these stations as sinners, yearning for the day when we're more like him than we really are now. Second, what are the duties of equals? What are the duties we bear unto peers, brother to brother, sister to sister, siblings, minister to minister, employee to employee, so on and so forth? Interestingly, as I thought about this, sometimes the duties of equals are some of the most difficult because it's very easy for equals to become rivals. Is it not? Paul warns of this very thing in Philippians 2.3. He's writing to equals, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, meaning we're tempted to look at each other and see rivals. It'd be difficult, again, not to hear the Joseph narrative behind this. (laughs) The brothers saw him, and what did they owe to him? They owed him the love and the honor of a brother. Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Equals owe each other high esteem. There's a tendency not to esteem those we perceive as competitors. If we view one another as rivals, we've disqualified them in some sense from our esteem because we're going to labor to destroy them. (laughs) We're going to labor to outdo them. Paul says it's a danger for us in the church to view one another not as family, not as brothers and sisters in the Lord, but as rivals. Not as a true household, but a cluster of competitors. It's a danger, is it not? I mean, any household in shambles, you probably don't need to look far for that dynamic to be going on unchecked. That's what we see here. Because we receive differently, don't we? We've all received different portions, different portions of gifts, different portions of graces, different portions in terms of spiritual life, different portions in terms of earthly life. There's plenty of occasion for the enemy to sow those seeds of rivalry among us. That's what he did to Jacob's house. 
Joseph was an equal, and yet he had received a different portion. And they hated him for it. They owed to him the esteem that they owed to a brother. Joseph, in my understanding, was not an innocent young lad in this. He also owed to his brothers a certain esteem. Instead, he comes off as brazen and pompous, at the very least obtuse. And so the entire household is reduced to chaos, reduced to strife, because no one would yield to another in terms of honor. And we know this well, don't we? It's easier to dismiss or despise an equal than to honor that one. The three daughters of General Yapanchin, Dostoevsky's the idiot. Anybody read Dostoevsky's the idiot? Anyway, the three daughters were all lovely, all beautiful, all highly sought after in society. None of them married, but even among the three daughters, it was plain that the youngest was the most beautiful. So what did the older sisters do? Bless them. They made a pact that they would do everything they could to find a suitable husband for their beautiful sister, even if it meant losing a portion of their own dowry, forfeiting something of their own prospects. Bless those daughters to be wronged for the good of an equal. How beautiful. To forfeit a right. To forfeit a right. So that a brother or sister may be loved. How wonderful. Beloved, in a very real sense, we are all equals before the Lord, laid low by the same sin, secured by the same grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, I assure you, you have more than adequate reason to esteem one another highly because that's how God esteems every one of you. And you do well to look upon one another with the eyes that the Lord looks upon you with in Jesus Christ. For he sees rightly. We see wrongly. Take it unto heart. Thus we also owe as equals rejoicing in others' gifts and graces. See how this follows from sincere love, sincere Christian affection. Once we cease viewing one another as rivals, we're freed to rejoice in the particular gifts that God has given one another because we're family. Now perhaps you've had this experience with your actual family or with friends wherever there's true love. I hope you've had this experience, this life-giving experience where you view another receiving good, another receiving gifts, another enjoying opportunities and successes, and your heart swells with joy for them. How frequently we begrudge God His kindness unto others. Don't let that pass your notice as an occasion to feel the heinousness of your sin. That's ugly. And we've all got it in us. That we would incline towards begrudging the Lord's good gifts as He bestows various talents, various opportunities, various successes upon others. And our first thought are these greedy thoughts of they probably don't deserve it. I deserve better than that. That's ugly, isn't it? 
And we've got it in us, don't we? The excellency of our Lord again shines forth in this. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. What? (laughs) He was willing to be our equal in the sense that he was true man. He took upon himself our infirmities. He was numbered with transgressors as the Lord Jesus Christ went out to John the Baptist. John was perplexed. You shouldn't be here. (laughs) You've got no reason to be baptized. I have reason to be baptized by you. But what does Christ say? Let it be to fulfill all righteousness. I must be numbered among the transgressors. And this at the heart of the great exchange where Christ takes all of our ill. Beloved, we had forfeited all of our gifts. We had forfeited all of our graces by virtue of the fall. Christ says, I'll take all of that and I will give them my righteousness. I will take their death. I will give them my life. I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. And we begrudge one another such paltry things. Do you feel it? Do you feel it? His excellency, our wretchedness, the wonder of his love, that he's placed his name upon us even still. I hope that you do. We can close just in briefly considering the promise. That's how the commandment ends, that your days may be long in the land where the Lord your God is giving you. Paul echoes it in Ephesians 6. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. You can hear as the catechism deals with that, that it views like an authentic blessing to be had in this life as something of this principle is worked out. I think there's a greater sense in which it's been secured to us and for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's also a sense in which the Westminster are saying, you want to find a happy house? It's sort of Tolstoy, right? All happy families are alike. Because something like this is working itself out in it. Husbands, parents caring for their children in this way. Husbands serving their wives in self-sacrificial love. Wives honoring and respecting their husbands as unto the Lord. Children beginning to gradually see the excellencies of having godly parents who sacrifice much for their good and flicker back something of the respect and the honor that is due unto them. That's the happy family, is it not? Isn't that worth more than all of the earthly accomplishments you could imagine? What would you rather have? Degrees from Ivy League schools or a home marked by this? Who could put a price tag on that? Isn't that just what Proverbs said? Proverbs 17.1, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. It's this exact point. You can't put a price tag on the life and the prosperity and the thriving that's envisioned as we all attend to these stations and duties with utter dependence upon the Lord, seeking the grace and the mercy of both forgiveness and fulfillment as he calls us unto them. But let's be honest. Our homes are often marked by strife, are they not? Our churches are often marked by strife. Are they not? 
There's an illustration to be had in one of our members trying to destroy a window, even now. (laughs) Our churches, our homes are marked by strife. We know our pride. We know its devastating effects. And so I would leave us rejoicing that even these difficulties, even these shortcomings are overruled by our God. That's part of the loveliness of the entire Joseph narrative, is it not? That the household devolving into strife through the arrogance and the cruelty was really under God's overruling power all along, such that Joseph could say what you meant for ill, God meant for good. And such will it be for all of our wrongheadedness, our infirmities, our ignorance, and even our sin as the children of God, if you can believe it. There's great hope to be had there. We should hear the promise here of long life and prosperity in the land, ultimately as that land and that long life and that prosperity which Christ has secured for us, as the one who has fulfilled the law for us, as the one who has sealed us with the Holy Spirit, as the one who has purchased that peace, that harmony, not just among men, but between God and man such that the land for which we're waiting, the life for which we're waiting is one where God's glory will shine forth in its fullness and all will take their proper place at the feet of the king, crying worthy, and he will enclose us, enfold us in the embrace of a brother, in the embrace of a friend, in the embrace of a husband, and with the glory of a king and peace and harmony will be ours forevermore. Beloved, this is our hope. May it inform us even now as we attend to those duties in this world which still remains marred by sin and misery as we labor in faith, hope, and love. Join me in prayer. Our great God and Father, we do give you thanks for the excellencies of your law, for the fulfillment that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ and the leading forth in lives of righteousness even now as we walk by the Spirit and gratify not the desires of the flesh. Make this our portion more and more. May Christ dwell in our hearts by faith as His reign of grace strengthens in the hearts of those whom You've gathered. And may more and more be gathered in to see the loveliness of this King and the loveliness of the portion which comes in Him and in Him alone. We ask in Christ's name, Amen.